Hi friends, you're listening to Doctors Who Create and this is Darlena Liu. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Over the past year, we've seen a horrifying increase in anti-Asian hate crimes. As an Asian American woman, I've felt unsafe walking in my neighborhood. I've been harassed when spending time with other Asian friends in public parks in broad daylight. I fear for the safety of my family and my friends. So I've wanted to do an episode on this topic for a very long time. And with May being Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month, I want to dedicate today's podcast to discuss ways we can better support our Asian identifying patients and colleagues during these difficult times. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. James Lee. He is a psychiatry resident at the University of Washington, and he recently wrote a piece called Combating Anti-Asian Sentiment, a Practical Guide for Clinicians. I'm James Lee. I'm a son of two lovely Korean immigrants who raised me kind of in a mixture, mostly in kind of the United States, but a little bit in Korea. I moved around all around as a kid, um, all the way from Connecticut to kind of Colorado to where I kind of grew up and where, to where I call home in Olympia, Washington. Um, and then I kind of had a weird like prodigal son moment where I like went all the way to college on the East Coast and then kind of went to uh, med school in the Midwest and then ended up to where I am in Seattle today, which is like a weird homecoming, but um, it's good to be back. I grew up a lot like I think thinking a lot about Asian identity and like really not enjoying it and kind of thinking critically about that model minority myth that we're kind of always told. I was I was always scared about like thinking about like going to UC Berkeley because like there's like 50% Asian population there and like what was like what would it be like to like not be special or not be different and I think there's so many kind of like the, the Asian American experience is like so like intricate and complex and nuanced and um all of that kind of came to a head when I was trying to write this article and just kind of me reckoning with my identity and like finding a lot of pride in it now in a way that I hadn't when I was growing up. Um, and growing up surrounded by a lot of Asian peers and then kind of going and then contrasting that with my medical school where like, like very oftentimes I was the only person of color in the room. And I think that that like that frame shift and realizing that arcs like a lot of Asian American experiences are like very unique um, in comparison to how a lot of Americans perceive the world. That was something that required different location changes and understanding that, you know, where we grow up like geographically can really impact how we perceive the world. And calling different places home really made me realize, yeah, like being Korean American is like, is, is not something that everyone, like that everyone can attest to. Um, and that perspective is important. Right. I grew up in Flushing, Queens, so definitely really high Asian American population. And I feel like it felt very natural being in a place where signs were in so many different languages and the food was everywhere and everyone looked like me. And then going to schools where that wasn't the case, there was definitely that disconnect. It feel, I felt like it took a few years to be like, oh, wow, this is not the way it is everywhere else. Um, and I think what you're talking about, that nuance, it really relates to when we care for patients too and getting that full story. Uh, is that some of the motivation be behind writing a, a practical guide for clinicians to think about these issues? Yeah, I think that was a huge part of it. Like, I mean, I think a lot, 
going back quickly to childhood, when we think about my middle school lunches and how like I always like my mom always packed me like kimbap for lunch and all of my friends would be like, that's like so smelly that look, it smells gross and like, having like fish for lunch. And I think that the, the sense of othering that that's so that was so ingrained in me as a child and, and just kind of that that weird separation of oh like it'd be great if I could fit in more so I like you know ate more chicken tenders in lunch and things like that right all of that kind of compounded and yeah I think just Asian identity is like something that's so nuanced and so the racism that a lot of Asians experience is like nuanced as well and um, and I think that's what I wanted to tease out um, a lot of the current anti-racism movement is surrounded around is surrounded around black lives which i think is something that's so important and needs to happen um and because so much of kind of how we view race is like on this black white binary like we lose a lot of like we lose a lot of like lives in the middle um and i think that it's that's why a lot of asian americans um are easily kind of polarized when it comes to racism a lot of people believe in that model minority and think critically about like oh man, like I worked hard as, uh, like I worked hard when I came into this country and you can work hard too. And like, and race isn't, and race isn't a problem. And then you have people on the other side who really believe in Black Lives Matter and then kind of step, step away from the spotlight and make sure that a lot of the attention is kind of going towards populations who have been historically underrepresented and like horrifically assaulted. And, but then a lot of Asian Americans that don't um, talk about their own experiences of racism. Um, and I think we see that clinically. I think we see that, um, like, and we, we see that, we see those narratives all the time where, you know, we think like Asian American racism isn't super real. And, um, and I wanted to combat that because it is real and it like become, it, it's becoming more real and more salient and more distressing. Ever since I wrote the article, I've like tried to use my own tips, which is like, so to, you know, so as to not be like super hypocritical. Um, and I've gotten a lot of like interesting responses from my patients. Like a lot of my patients were like, oh, like that's not something I would have considered. And like, I'm scared when I walk down the street, but I don't think that it's like, but I'm, but like, it's not something that like bothers me regularly. And it's just that, that weird kind of disconnect um, I saw in a, kind of, in a few of my older um, Asian patients in terms of like, oh, I'm, I'm not scared of like being like attacked, but I am scared of being attacked. And there's that disconnect there. Um, and then uh, some younger patients that I've worked with have been just like, frankly, really scared, not only for themselves, but for their families. And um, and they're kind of like, and I think that you, you hear their voices a little bit more and, um, and you, I think that they are becoming louder and be and just kind of advocating for themselves in a different way. Yeah, just to go over some of the tips that you included in your guide, it seemed like one of them was about making sure that the physical space is a place that's inviting for patients who identify as Asian or Asian American, like having translated materials available. Um, it seems like also on, on the point of asking patients about their experiences with racism, how do you broach that subject? Like asking potentially, do you feel safe walking down the street as maybe a segue into a deeper conversation? Is that how you see it? Could you elaborate on that? Totally. I, I mean, I think that asking a question specifically about race opens up the space to allow race, race to be talk, talked about. Um, we, we traditionally enter spaces when, when there is, when there's a power differential, so like the classic doctor patient, there's, I think there's always going to be a power differential there, no matter how we try to soothe that or, you know, level the playing field out. Um, so when there is a power differential, like you, as, 
I think as, as people of color, like we walk in and we don't know what's like, what's really appropriate to say and what isn't. Um, and I think a lot of that was kind of informed by my time at, uh, in the Midwest where it, there was a lot, there were many providers who were white and who were very well-intentioned, but you never really knew if you could talk about your experience with race or your experience with like sexual assault. And just because there is a power differential and you want to respect that and you don't know what's permissible to talk about in healthcare and in your patient, in like in, in the patient setting. Um, so by asking about race directly, you allow that patient to be like, well, yeah, like I, I'm scared. Like, and you open that space up and give patients that permission to be like, race is something that we can talk about here. I don't, and I think by having disclaimers, like I don't know all the answers, like, and I haven't experienced what you have gone through, but um, by at least opening that space up, like you can make sure to screen appropriately and make sure that patients get the care that they need. And not just in psychiatry, the kind of ideas for this to be for all clinicians, right? I like wrote this specifically kind of for the well-to-do like family medicine doctor. Like, I think that, <laughs> I think that this is like, this is not just, this isn't like mental health isn't just in psychiatry. Like, oh my God, we would miss so many patients that way, right? Um, like mm -hmm. this is for internal medicine, it's for peds, it's for a lot of primary care specialties um, because that matters. And it's not something that can, it's, it's screening, right? Like we're screening actively for depression and anxiety and that's so valuable. And that's not something that we can miss. Um, and that's not something that we can just leave to the mental health professionals. Totally agree with you. And I love how you give the guide with such tangible things. Cause I think sometimes when we're talking about advocacy, it's like, oh, we should do something. And then what that something is, isn't always elucidated, but here you're actually, there's that wonderful table that lists things that you can try. And you mentioned having a chance to try a couple of them yourself with patients. How did you come up with this specific list in, for your guide and what have been the results? I <laughs> Just in terms of like the practicality of something, like I totally agree. I think advocacy, it's easy. It's not easy, but like, I think it's easy to get angry. Um, and because the things that are happening make us angry. And that's like such a real phenomenon. Um, and it's hard, but it's, and it's harder to take that emotion and like translate that into something that's like actually something that we can do. Um, so thank you for saying, thank you for noting that because I, I wanted to make sure that this was something, th these were like small steps that we could take to make sure that patients felt heard. Um, in terms of like the tips, right? I think a lot of the tips are like changing the environment, making sure that like a discriminatory patient isn't in the same room as a like a patient of color and um, figuring those dynamics out. Um, those are like, I think small things that can really impact a patient's like hospital stay or a clinic visit. Um, I think like specifically like asking about safety and asking about depression and anxiety in regards to race can reframe those like that pathologic behavior. So like, a lot of people are like, I'm anxious, like I'm anxious, um, but I don't like really fulfill a lot of criteria. And then when you put it in the, the context of race, it like, oh, like this anxiety is like directly related to the fact that I am Asian and I could get hurt somewhere. And that is, and but maybe that's not, if race wasn't brought up, then maybe that anxiety piece wouldn't have been brought up either. So um, I think just like calling those dynamics out is important. Um, they're like, they're like, I think some smaller things like translating brochures that 
I think would be really helpful. Indicating that translator services are like free of charge also helpful. Um, Cause those small things add up. And I've seen a lot of patients, especially during my time in residency, like get really suboptimal care because they're not willing to like get, they're not willing to go through the trouble of going through a translator. And that's also not awesome. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think it's about that kind of represent, like making sure that people can feel heard. Um, not like with their language, like with their language that they're comfortable speaking. Yeah. And another important part of your guide was talking about how we can support colleagues, support healthcare workers um, and things like additional training, or I think something as simple as like acknowledging events that happen can make a huge difference. I know when I was part of teams working in the hospital and some major event happened, it seemed a disservice to go about a day like it was completely normal. So I would really love to see more people bring this up and, and maybe as part of rounds to start off rounds or something like that. What are your thoughts? Oh yeah, I mean, we don't like, as I mean, as healthcare professionals, like we don't really get to, we do, well, yeah, being frank, like, we don't really get to choose when to come in or not, right? Like when, like if we have like a panel of like patients who are like discriminatory, like, those are kind of our patients. And we can, you know, as residents, we have a little bit of like flex in terms of like, you know, thinking about how it impacts our training. But um, when we think about attendings who are kind of assigned to a team and stay there, or when we think about our like coworkers in who are in social work or nursing, and there aren't many replacements from their perspective um, who can like take on that role, like we're oftentimes we're stuck in our job and we don't have the option to turn away from our patients because a lot of our patients like need the care. <laughs> um, so like, I, I've seen racism like in my patients, like, like not infrequently and being able to support my, my colleagues who are also Asian and being like, hey, like when that guy made that weird comment about like making you his Laotian wife, like that's like super unacceptable. And like, that's like really bad. <laughs> like just like saying that out loud, like, is there anything else I can do to help, right? Um, and I think that I, I found this section of the table hard to write because we all process that trauma so differently. And um, some of us like wanna talk about it for days and others of us like just wanna let it pass by. And there's no really right way to go about it. So I left the, the table kind of vague, um, but just supporting people how they need to be supported, whether it's ignoring it, whether it's discussing it more, um, there's, no, there's no right way to process the like a microaggression or a macroaggression that happens. That's a good point. It's like the platinum rule, treat others the way that they want to be treated, right? <laughs> After writing this piece, I guess, are, do you have plans to follow up or like, what are the next steps for people listening to, to this podcast episode for people who um, want to be more informed, want to take more action? Oh my gosh. I mean, I try so hard as a physician to Oh, I, I also say, I also hate saying that I'm a physician. Like that feels like so weird. It feels so foreign. Um, it still feels so new. Um, but like as someone in medicine, like I think that, I think that a lot of doctors get like God complexes and like think they can solve all the problems. And I really want to avoid that. Uh, there are so many people who are like smarter than me and who have thought about these issues like much more thoroughly than me who are doing like advocacy work 100% of their time. And like a lot of like the things that I'm doing right now, um, I think 
I hope are helpful, um, but I always want to refer people to the people, like I, I want to refer people to the activists who are really pushing like the envelope and making sure that people are heard. Um, so that's with organizations like Stop AAPI Hate. Um, there's a bunch of kind of like, there's a bunch of organizations that are like literally working to fundraise and make policy and um, make sure that like Asian Americans in this country are like, can, can feel safe, um, whether that's from a legal perspective, whether that's from like a, like a funding perspective, like there's so many ways that other people can are tackling this huge, like this huge problem. And I, and I hope that, like, I hope that, you know, these are small steps that like a lot of like the, that the everyday doctor can, can take, um, but that doesn't stop there. I think that we have to continue to think creatively with people and who, are always thinking about these issues. And also I feel like, yes, I, I definitely going to the organizations that are, are focusing on this work 100% makes sense. I, I think the other part that I'm realizing as I went through going through medical school, the more and more experience I have in healthcare, I'm realizing how central advocacy is to the role of a physician, even if you're not out there doing 50% advocacy work, I feel like so much of things like racism have direct impacts on healthcare outcomes. So to ignore that component, to ignore the social determinants would be a disservice to patient care. So I think uh, every everyone in healthcare can take it upon themselves to implement some of these tips that you mentioned, to, to be informed, to learn, educate, and um, be an advocate in, in their own realm. Oh, totally. Like, I think that's what I, what I said. It's like, it's, we donating time and money and energy is such an important aspect of this work. Um, but also finding how to be anti finding out how to be anti-racist in your everyday job and in your home is just as critical. And we don't often think about that. The second thing we think a lot about, like, I'm going to donate $50 to this organization, or I'm going to like go to this protest. And, but like, but like, yeah, if you're still in a system that like perpetuates racism, like that's also not great. So like, how do you stop that too? Um, and there's like so much writing and so much like literature about that and how to minimize and how to, I mean, how to think about our jobs and as and our roles in the community um, from an anti-racist lens. And that is like, that's where the work should be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the harder work. It's easier to yeah. <laughs> write a check, check off a box I've attended, and it's a lot harder to engage with it every single day and, and have tough conversations. Thanks so much for being on this podcast episode. I really appreciate it. Um, I was wondering, do you have any final thoughts, final words of wisdom, or if you wanted to reflect on um, just creativity in, in your own life, creativity in medicine, what, what that means to you, if there are other ways besides this this piece that you wrote that you feel like you're, is your creative outlet in, in medicine? Um, I have one for each of those questions. I think- Perfect. A final wrap up thing is I, um, getting, it's been really interesting getting feedback or like, I don't know, reading social media about the, the New England Journal of Medicine piece. Um, I, like a lot of people are just like, a lot of people were like, this is like obvious. And like, this is like something that's like, like this is like something that's like so easy to do. And I was like, yeah, then, then start doing it, you know? Um, and I think there was that part. And there's like a group of people who are like, ah, oh, like, we are like further dividing people by like by just like thinking about them from a racial perspective, which is like 
a little frustrating, but um, I, I like, I don't know how to say that gently, but like, people are actively dying and getting hurt, like primarily from like, because of their race. And that has been like historically a thing forever. And by, by integrating race into our like healthcare, like by like acknowledging that race is like a really important determinant of health. Like that is <laughs> like, that is what the purpose of this kind of article is. Um, we have to acknowledge that because that because race is vital to our health, regardless of what people think about it or not. Um, and that's been like well studied and like well shown with a lot of different research. Um, so that's my hot take for the people who, who don't think race is an important determinant of health, which I don't know. I, I don't think that's super common. I think it's changing. The The tide of medicine is changing ever so slowly. <laughs> right, right, right. We're, we're getting there. We're figuring it out. Mm -hmm. And then people, are, some other people are like, oh, like racial history, like a racial history, that sounds like uncomfortable. And I'm like, is it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe it is. And that's okay. Or maybe you don't feel like you know enough. And that's okay, too. But like, a lot of things that we ask in medicine are uncomfortable and like intensely personal, like sexual history, substance abuse, or substance use histories. Like, that's not like, that's not easy either. But we like integrate that into our practice, because we acknowledge that it is a huge part of medicine. So that's important. Um, from a creativity perspective, like, we, I'm not like, I'm, I try really hard not to be a robot and it's, it's easy in intern year specifically where you're spending so many hours in the hospital. It's like so easy to kind of fall into a routine that makes you forget like a little bit of the humanity that brought you into medicine. Um, I like, I like sat down with like a couple, like, a, and with a couple of my co-residents and just like one day just like cried at like, at like how hard the work was and how it seemed like we weren't doing a lot for my patients and, and just like kind of being in that frustration together. Um, I've always been someone who like listened to music in like as a way to de-stress, but music became so much more integral to my time as a resident because it was something that reminded me that like, yeah, like you have like, you have like emotions and you have like, you are someone who feels things and like, and a lot, and as psychiatrists, we try to work to make sure that our feelings don't interfere with our patient's care. Um, um, so we try to sometimes mute ourselves or we try to ramp other parts of our personality up and it sometimes feels like a performance. And that's kind of what a lot of medicine feels like too. It feels a little bit performative, performative for attending or for your patients. Um, and music is something that's always kind of been like, yeah, like this is something that you use to de-stress, but it's also something that you like sincerely love and that's something that like no one else can really take away from you and that's great um so i yeah all that goes to say like i i've loved music and it's a great way to stay in touch with yourself um especially during these sensitive times of training um i love creating music and i love like building community with music and it's easier to do that than i thought it would be from the smaller things like sending Spotify tracks to friends and like doing a little bit of that. And then like sometimes like grabbing my violin or like hanging out and just like rocking out with some now vaccinated friends and like, you know, like just playing some beats and like trying to record something. Um, that's been super fulfilling. Um, and it, it's not necessarily like a distraction from medicine. It is, I mean, maybe it is a distraction from medicine um, and one that we well deserve, but 
Um, but I also think that it's something that enhances my, my, my medical career because like we're taking all those emotions and the, the, those feelings of frustration and burnout and translating them into something that may be useful and maybe not useful. And it doesn't have to be useful. It's just fun and, and it feels impactful in its own way. I love that so much. Thanks so much for sharing and for this whole conversation. I've learned so much. Thanks for listening to this very important episode of Doctors Who Create. There's still more work to be done. Organizations like Hollaback and Asian Americans Advancing Justice are offering free online bystander intervention training sessions. PBS is currently streaming their five-part documentary series on Asian Americans in the history And of course, please check out Dr. James Lee's Practical Guide for Clinicians on Combating Anti-Asian Sentiment, which is published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 24th, 2021. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe, tell a friend, leave a review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at doctorswhocreate at gmail.com. Or tweet us at doctorscreate. Or check out our website, doctorswhocreate.com, to listen to our podcast episodes and also to check out other articles and profiles of physicians who are creative. Intro music brought to you by the band Night Float.